Father, we, we ask as we come to your word that you would teach us and encourage us, build our faith and strengthen our devotion to you. Strengthen us, Lord, as we seek to become more like Jesus. And in your name we pray, amen. As Paul wrote the letter to the, to the Philippians, they had a kind of a dominant issue going on. And we know that because of the things that he says. He doesn't come out and challenge them directly in a very, very strong way. Instead, he, he threads a, a, a cord all the way through, beginning with the, the very first verse of the letter, where he addresses it this way, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Uh, Paul only introduces himself as a servant three times in 13 letters. He usually uses apostle. But here he limits himself to the word servant. And what we see as we go through the letter, if you read through the letter, is a a church that loved being served. Uh, Where the, the Corinthians loved controversy and conflict and competition and the Colossians loved philosophy and debate and, and the latest human ideas. The Philippian church primarily was a church that wanted to be served. I think part of that might just be human nature. That's part of human nature. I think partly it's because of the city itself. Philippi is called a leading city in Macedonia. It was a Roman colony which gave it unique privileges. They didn't have to pay taxes to the uh, to the local governments and district, they paid taxes directly to Rome. They had uh, legal protections and political protections nobody else had. And as a, as a market center, it was a wealthy, influential place. You want to think Beverly Hills, not Detroit. And so as, as these, these people became Christians and they truly got saved, um, they brought that mindset with them of being served and so paul begins paul and timothy servants of christ jesus slaves of christ jesus he goes on after his introduction to use himself as an example in verse 12 when he says i want you to know brothers that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel and He goes on to talk about the fact that his imprisonment has caused an explosion in evangelism. And he understands that that increased evangelism could bring increased uh, trouble for him. That could be through just the emotional grief of not being able to go do it himself. And it could be through uh, persecution from the Roman authorities. He was arrested for preaching the gospel. He was seen as a leader within the, the Christian movement. If the if the work of the church continues to flourish and even increase while he's in prison, continue to punish the leaders, continue to try and cut the head off of the snake, as it were. He says in Philippians 1.21, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That was his attitude. He says, living on in the flesh means fruitful uh, labor for me. Leaving, dying, means being with Christ. I would, he says, I would rather die and be with Christ. 
But he also understands he has an eternity to be with the Lord and just a very short time with them. And he has a very short time with them, whether he lives another five or ten years or another 50 years. It's a short time compared to an eternity with Christ. He can't lose his eternity with Christ. And so he says, well, I would rather do that. I will live as a servant and, and put you first. He talks to them after... Uh, after talking about their own, the own real, their own reality of suffering, he talks to them in, in chapter 2 and says in verse 3, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That is, serve each other. Change the way that you think about each other. And then he cites Jesus as the supreme example of that. Jesus who had always been God, has always existed as God, the second person of the Trinity, the the living word, the eternal son of God, nobody could ever get higher, humbled himself lower than anybody else would ever be humbled. To becoming a man, to becoming a bondservant, he says, a slave, and becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So he uses himself as the first example. He uses Jesus as the, the second example. And that's a little bit like saying that all you have to do is be a Christian like Usain Bolt runs or like Lindsey Vaughn skis or like Eric Clapton plays guitar. That's all you have to do. And if, if you're like me, if you're like perhaps you, you look at those examples and say, okay, that's, those are great examples. Those are wonderful examples. But I can't begin to touch that. I, I can't begin to live at that kind of level. And so what we're going to see this morning in chapter 2, verses 19 to 30, is he gives us the examples of two more men, Timothy and Epaphroditus, who continue this example of servanthood. He says, beginning in verse 19, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will, genuinely be, who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that, that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am all the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Let's talk about Timothy for a few minutes. We know a fair amount about Timothy from the scriptures from the book of Acts and, and from Paul's letters. Timothy was a, uh, a half-breed. His father was Gentile. His mother was Jewish. 
He was, he was born and raised in the city of Lystra, which is in uh, modern-day Turkey, kind of right in the center. If you imagine Turkey as having a nose like a sperm whale sticking out into the Adriatic, Timothy's born kind of right in the middle of that block. Whatever his father did, we don't know. Uh, we have no record of his father. We have no news of his father. No information other than that he was a Gentile. There's all kinds of speculation. It appears that he was out of the picture fairly soon. Timothy is primarily raised by his mother Eunice and his grandmother Lois. They were Christians and they raised him in the scriptures. They raised him in the Old Testament scriptures. Paul came through Lystra the first time. He came through Lystra a second time on his second missionary journey. And at that point, he invited Timothy to join him. And it's thought Timothy was probably 20, 18 or 20, 22 years old at that point. The book of Philippians is being written about 15 years later. Timothy joined Paul around 49 or 50. The book of letter to the Philippians is being written around 63, 64, somewhere in there. The dates are approximate years. And during that amount of time, Timothy is, is part of Paul's team. Now, by saying part of Paul's team, we don't mean that they, they spent a huge amount of one-on-one quality time. Paul didn't say, I'm on this fantastic speaking tour. We're staying in great hotels, eating in wonderful restaurants. We're doing a lot of sightseeing. Why don't you come with me? He brings Timothy along and immediately puts him to work. They go literally from, from Lystra up to Troas, up into the the upper corner of of modern-day Turkey, across into Philippi where Paul Paul and Silas are arrested and beaten. They're released and they they make their way west and then Paul heads south to Athens. And he very quickly, within a few months now of picking up Timothy, sends Timothy back to uh, Thessalonica to find out how they were doing. So this is a, a pretty trustworthy man. But very little of his time serving with Paul was being with Paul, sitting at Paul's feet, learning all the leadership lessons that Promise Keeper says Timothy picked up from Paul. This was on-the-job learning. There are two things that stand out to me about Timothy. The first is his single-minded devotion. Paul says in verse 20, I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Timothy was really unique. Now, Paul doesn't mean that the other men and women that he knew would not have been truly concerned. I think genuinely concerned here isn't genuinely concerned as opposed to fake concern. It's genuinely concerned as this is his character. This, this is just who Timothy is. This is what he does. I know if I turn Timothy loose on a project, he devotes himself to that. He pours himself into that. Paul mentions 76 Christians by name in the New Testament. I know because I counted them this week. 16 of them are women. He speaks fondly, respectfully, and honorably about most of those people. Nobody is like Timothy. And so when he has a unique situation, he sends Timothy. I think it's telling, too, that he doesn't send Timothy to Corinth to deal with all of the conflict going on there. He sends Timothy to Philippi, where you have, generally speaking, I think, soft-hearted, true Christians who need to be urged into genuine devotion. 
He, he lets Timothy play to his strengths. In Colossians, Paul writes this, Whatever you do, work heartily, as unto the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Timothy had this as his mindset. What Timothy did, he did heartily. Paul seems here to be making reference, by the way, to King Solomon. In Ecclesiastes 9, Paul, Solomon writes, Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. That's Timothy. He had a single-minded devotion. It doesn't mean he didn't get discouraged. He did get discouraged. It doesn't mean that he didn't need to be encouraged. He did need to be encouraged. If you read through 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, there's only 10 chapters there. It wouldn't take long. You find over 40 exhortations to Timothy personally. Things like train yourself for godliness, be an example in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. Fight the good fight of faith. Fan into flame the gift of God that was given to you. Preach the word. Fulfill your ministry. Timothy got discouraged, but it was easy to encourage him because he loved the Lord, he loved the word, and he had such regard for Paul. Timothy needed to be challenged at times, but Timothy responded to the challenge. He stepped up when he was called upon. He was single-minded in his devotion. The second thing that I see about Timothy is that for him, Jesus is first. He put Jesus first in everything. In verse 21 of uh, Philippians 2, Paul says, they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. And he's clearly contrasting them with Timothy. And the message here is Timothy doesn't seek his own interest. He seeks the interest of Christ. He puts Jesus first. That didn't mean that he was off by himself, all alone, making his own decisions, serving as kind of, a, of an independent. He was thoroughly submitted to Paul's leadership. He was thoroughly immersed in the church. What it means is that Timothy's primary goal was pleasing and honoring the Lord Jesus. And because of that, if Paul had ever given Timothy an instruction that didn't have Christ at the center of it, Timothy wouldn't have followed it. And it means that when Timothy goes to Philippi, he can be trusted. He's not going to show up and, and, and satisfy his own desires. You know, there's the old saying that when all you've got is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Timothy wasn't going to show up and say, you need what I bring. That's by definition, you need what I bring. Timothy was going to show up and say, you need what God has given me for you. It's not about satisfying himself, and it wasn't about satisfying their own needs either. Verse 22, Paul says, You know his proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. Notice Paul doesn't say, as a son with a father he served me. Timothy was not an assistant to Paul. He was a co-worker with Paul. Paul says, he served with me in the gospel. The gospel was the trade. Timothy was Paul's son in the faith, and he trained him. Uh, in our time, of course, as our, as our kids hit their, their teenage years, uh, maybe a little bit later than that, but somewhere around there, we start talking about what are you going to do for a living? You're going to go to college? How are you going to support yourself? And there's all kinds of things that are, that are possible. In the first century, you didn't do that. If you're a farmer in the first century, your son's farm. 
If you're a carpenter in the first century, your son's carpent. If you're a baker, your son's bake. That, that's what they do. And so Paul says, he came with me as a son goes with his father, and he learned my trade. And with me, he served the gospel. He served the Lord Jesus Christ. He put Christ first. And again, because of that, he could be trusted. The church belongs to Jesus. The church doesn't belong to you or to me. It doesn't belong to us as a congregation. It belongs to the Lord Jesus. If you think about the metaphors that the, that the, the New Testament uses of the church and of God's relationship to us, God is king, we are the subjects. God is creator, we are the creation. God is the shepherd, we are the flock. God is the master, we are the servants. God is the father, we are the children. He's the bridegroom, we are the bride. He's the head, we are the body. He is the vine, we are the branches. He's the builder, we are the temple. There's never a place where these metaphors get flipped. There's never a place where the metaphors put us on top and God beneath us. The only one that even begins to look like a peer relationship is bridegroom and bride. And from the, the description given in Ephesians 5, it's clearly that the, uh, the, and a, uh, an antique and ancient biblical relationship of husband and wife. It's not an egalitarian kind of equal thing. It's husband as, as the head of the wife, as God is the head of Christ and Christ is the head of a man. So the church belongs to Jesus. Timothy put Jesus first in everything, meaning that the church got the best from him that it could possibly get. And he could be trusted to serve the church according to the will of God, according to the demands of the king. So Timothy is a, a, a man who is of single-minded devotion and who puts Jesus first. Epaphroditus is a man we don't know much about at all. We know far more about Timothy. Epaphroditus is only mentioned twice in the Bible, here in these verses and then in Philippians 4. It's only in this letter. He obviously was from Philippi. He was sent to Paul. We just don't know much. But from what Paul says here, there's still a couple things we can glean. First is his commitment. Epaphroditus was committed. Paul in verse 25 says, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus. And here's his description of him. My brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. As a, as a brother, Epaphroditus is a, a genuine Christian. Paul makes that clear. As a fellow worker, the sense is that Epaphroditus, once he arrived in Rome, threw himself into the work that Paul was doing. He stepped into the opportunities that Paul gave him. He went where Paul sent him, and he labored in the field. As a fellow soldier, the emphasis is on a, a willingness to endure suffering, a willingness to follow through with the instructions and follow through with the faithfulness. As the Philippian church's messenger, the, the Greek word there is apostolos. It's the word we get apostle from. It literally means one who is sent, one who is commissioned to go with a purpose. Where he is the, 
the church's minister to his, his need. I fully expected when I was translating this to come across the word diakonos or deacon. That's usually the word minister. It's a word that uh, diakonos refers to those who would wait tables as servants. Just basic faithful service. This is a word that we get liturgy from. And it means that Epaphroditus took this service, this, this commission from the Philippian church as a sacred duty. This was something he carried out as the will of God and devoted himself to. Well, that's a man who's committed. That's a man who has uh, thrown himself into the work faithfully. At some point, Epaphroditus becomes sick. And he is so sick that he's actually very, very near to death. He is not just knocking on death's door, he's leaning on it. The only thing that spares his life is that God has mercy on him. And God says, or Paul says in verse 27, God had mercy not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. The last thing that Paul needs is somebody coming 800 miles from Philippi and dying in his arms. And he says, God had mercy on him. Epaphroditus recovers and Paul puts him into the work. We don't, know what, we don't know what instructions Epaphroditus received from the church in Philippi. But clearly those instructions were, go help Paul any way he needs you to help. And Paul said, here's what you can do. He puts him into faithful service. And so Paul writes in verses 29 and 30, receive him in the Lord, having sent Epaphroditus back. Receive Epaphroditus now in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Now, the, when, when Epaphroditus got sick, it, it's probably most likely that he got sick on the journey. Um, that uh, they, they got him to Rome, and then those who were with him went back to Philippi. And they went back with the message, he's, he was at death's door when we left. We don't know what's, what his state might be now. Epaphroditus recovers and he finds out that news has been sent back to Philippi that he was so desperately sick and he begins to really be distressed, distraught over the fact that they had no way of knowing how he was. As far as they knew, he was, he was dead. And so Paul agrees to send him back to bring news back to Philippi, to bring this letter back to Philippi. What's interesting about that phrase, he risked his life, is that there, there's, there's two broad possibilities for the, that word. One is risk as in gambling, as in throwing dice or in, uh, in throwing lots and gambling money on that. And there's a sense in which Epaphroditus did that. He threw himself into the service of the Lord. And he accepted that whatever happened, happened. He was willing to do that. At a time when very few people traveled any kind of distance, he traveled 800 miles with money. Not with a check, with money. So he's vulnerable to bandits. He's vulnerable to all of the difficulties of travel. He's got at least one water crossing maybe two water crossings in there and a lot of miles on his feet 
a 40 to 60 day journey, depending on the time of year and what he faced on the road. And 40 or 60 days back. The other possibility for this word risk is, is interesting. I came across it in a commentary. And it's a word that was specifically coined to describe those who were willing to go nurse plague victims back to health. See, somebody who is willing to go into a situation where there's plague is risking their life because the likelihood is that they'll get it too. And it could be that that that's what took place, that Epaphroditus arrived in Rome. Paul said, there's opportunities everywhere. I want you to strengthen the church and I want you to take the gospel to the lost. And Epaphroditus went walking through the city and he came back and he said, I found a whole area where there are people who are infected with plague and nobody's with them. I'll go there. So that risking his life isn't just a potentially maybe as I go, something bad could happen, but I know exactly what I'm risking. We're not sure But either way, Paul says, you should honor men like this. You should lift them up. You should receive him with joy. You should recognize and hold him as an example. Now, there's obviously only one Jesus. And when you set Jesus as an example of of life, it sets the bar at the highest possible state. So just forgive like Jesus forgave. That's easy enough. Give your life like Jesus gave his life. Listen to the Father like Jesus listened to the Father. Live a pure, holy, righteous life like Jesus did. So that's the goal. And that's ultimately what the Holy Spirit's transforming us into. The Spirit of God isn't transforming us into Epaphroditus or Timothy or Paul, but the image of Christ. But it sets the bar so very high that all we can do is say one day by the grace of God and by the power of God, I'll do that. There have been very few like the Apostle Paul. If you, if you simply remove the, the apostolic nature of his calling, that, that initial authority that he had as an apostle, the scriptures coming through him, uh, the, 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 the signs and wonders performed by apostles, if you just look at Uh, remove those things and look at his life, there are still very few men like him. William Carey would be a man like that. Jonathan Edwards, who who spent the latter years of his life serving American Indians and seeing very few come to Christ. By the way, I just read this. Jonathan Edwards, who was part of the Great Awakening in the early part of the 1700s, he, he went into missions to Indians because his church kicked him out, because he continued to preach the gospel to his church. And even in the light and the warmth and the passion of the great awakening, people's ardor cooled. And so they finally said, no, 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 you're done. Time for you to go. And he knew that he wasn't done. And so he went the only place that he knew to go, which I think was Ohio, the wilds of Ohio to preach the gospel to Indians. There are not very many men like the apostle Paul. That's an awfully hard way to live. You read books on missions and you find out about missionaries who uh, went to Africa and they, they sent all of their possessions in caskets, expecting that at some point they would die and then they had a casket to be buried in. That was their luggage. And then he gives us Timothy. And there are more Timothys. 
There are more Timothys. There are more men who are willing to say, I don't have to be in charge. I don't want to be in charge. I want to be well-led. I want to be led by somebody who's godly and has a strong purpose, and I'm here to help. I'm here to serve. What can I do? And they devote their lives to that. But even that sets the bar pretty high for us. But there are Epaphroditus's everywhere. There are good, godly, faithful men and women everywhere who are given an opportunity and who rise to the occasion of that, entrust themselves to the Lord, and go serve as they're able to serve. Why does Paul send Timothy to Thessalonica? Timothy comes back and then Paul sends Timothy ultimately to Ephesus, which is probably where Timothy is now, although it's possible he had gone to Rome to see Paul. And then he sends him to Philippi. It's because Timothy was there as someone to be directed. He'd given his life over to the work of the ministry. But every town, every village, every church has the Epaphroditus who are simply stable, godly, faithful men. In a sense, Paul says, I'm sending Epaphroditus back to you because he's been helpful in Rome, but he doesn't belong in Rome. He belongs in Philippi. The work in Rome is important, but the work in Philippi is important. And if all the people leave the small places to go to the important so-called places, then the small places have a vacuum. And so as, as we think about bringing this home, it always helps to have a role model. And Paul's given us two men that emulate that we can emulate and that that exhibit some really positive things we can all be single-minded what has god given you to do what has he called you to do if you don't know it helps to find out but we know even there that he's called us to uh, prayer he's called us to share our faith as we're able to he's called us to righteousness he's called us to flee youthful lust he desires that we be sanctified that we be faithful to him over the course of our lives we don't have to hear, see something written in the sky or hear a voice from heaven to know the basics of what he wants us to do epaphroditus didn't become faithful because the Col- the philippians sent him to rome they sent him to rome because he had simply faithfully grown in Christ, we can do that. We, like Timothy, can, per, can put Jesus first in everything that we do. Putting Jesus first is not going to hinder you as a, a husband or a wife or a, a mother or father. It can only help. It can only help. Because it gives you a sound foundation to move on. It gives you a promise of, of love and acceptance that doesn't require it from everybody else around you. Like Epaphroditus, we can be passionately committed. When we're given a responsibility, we can say, this is what I'm going to do. He didn't have to compare himself to Paul, what Paul did or what Timothy did or what Silas did. It's what, what have I been given to do? And like Epaphroditus, we can faithfully serve. What do you have to give today? What do you have to do today? Who can you be praying for today? And will you be faithful to that? The the Lord really doesn't call us, in a sense, to do anything but be faithful where we are. Just be faithful where you are. And then tomorrow, be faithful there. Take it a day at a time. Let him lead. He'll open the doors that he wants to open for you. 
And so we can make our effort according to the truth of his word, according to the promises and the life that we have in the Lord, according to the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, meeting us at that point of ministry and at that point of service. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would strengthen us, grant us your wisdom and grant us your peace as we serve you, as we, uh, by serving you, serve others around us. We do ask that you would continue to transform our lives. We do ask that you would continue to make us like the Lord Jesus and complete that good work that you began in us. And Lord, we ask for opportunities, but no more opportunities than you have prepared us for. We ask that you would encourage us and that you would challenge us and strengthen us by your spirit to rise to those challenges. Lord, maybe more than anything else, I ask that you would make us like Epaphroditus, committed and faithful. Help us do that. We thank you for this day. We thank you for the love that you have poured out upon us. Bless us, Lord, as we go. Help us to live these things out this week. Fill our hearts with the gospel that we may know you, our Savior. Fill our mouths with the gospel that we may share it with those who are in need. We thank you again in Jesus' holy name. Amen.